Um, today's scripture reading is from the book of 1 Kings, chapter 11, verses 1 to 13. Um, if you are using our Pew Bibles, that is page 291. Um, I'll give you a moment to turn to it in your own Bibles or your devices. It's 1 Kings, chapter 11, verse 1 through 13. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart and after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination, abomination of Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord, as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Moloch, the abomination of Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so, he did the, and so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son." for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. May God bless the reading of his word. Now I'll invite Minister Pat to come up and give the sermon for today. Good morning, Crossbridge. Join me as I begin with prayer. Father in heaven, we incline our minds and hearts toward you. That as we ponder what you have prepared for us today, your Holy Spirit will find us alert and teachable. Thank you that you love us, that you draw us to yourself, and that by your Spirit you help us understand. For the hard parts, provide clarity. For the sensitive parts, give us grace to respond, that we may honor you, Jesus Christ, in every way, for it is in your name we pray, amen. Now, a feature of the Bible that separates it from so many ancient narratives and from the writings of other religions is this brutal honesty about even its greatest heroes and most heroic figures. Sometimes we see heroes at their best, at those pivotal moments in life. 
They're focused. They're faithful. They're courageous. We cheer them when they overcome the impossible. Other times, we see our heroes confused, anxious, perhaps even fearful. They may even behave foolishly as Saul did, or even treacherously as David did. And while we hope that our heroes would have fared better, we realize that they're more like us than they are like God. And I suppose that's the point. Two months ago, I had the privilege of launching this sermon series called Three Kings with Samuel's anointing of Saul. As Israel's first king, he was off to a great start. But when he failed, God stripped away the kingdom and gave it to David. And David was in so many ways a better king than Saul. Saul was fearful, but David was faithful, even when things were hard. We saw David's faith tested when he violated Bathsheba, when he failed himself, his household, his own general Joab, and even Uriah, a member of his military elite, called the mighty man of valor. Now, unlike Saul, who defied the rebukes of the prophet Samuel, David softened his heart when the prophet Nathan approached him. By faith, David confessed his sins. He humbled himself and asked God to forgive him. And after David repented, God restored the kingdom to him. And through Nathan, God named Solomon Jedidiah, which means beloved of God. And Solomon would be David's heir and successor to the throne. You see, the book of 1 Kings opened with the father's charge to his son just prior to David's death. You see, David provided Solomon a remarkable legacy. Here are several of David's key contributions. Jerusalem was established as a holy city and became the religious center and the national capital for all Jews. You see, all the conquests of the many nations provided gains of tribute and of territory that was unparalleled in all the times in this nation's history. And plans for constructing the temple given from father to son were intended to exalt the religious life of Israel and the worship of God. And idolatry was all but stamped out, and the worship of God was made universal and standard. You see, over the past several times, we've been treated with an account of Solomon's wisdom and the glory of his kingdom. But the author of 1 Kings doesn't hold back. He points out how Solomon squandered God's gifts and how he ruined the kingdom and the legacy David had passed on to him. By the time of his death, the doom of the kingdom had been sealed by Solomon's own foolishness and his sensuality. 
Now, if you were to continue reading through 1 Kings and beyond this sermon series, you would find a complete account of Israel's spiritual decline that ended in catastrophe, the end of the Davidic kingdom, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, and the exile of God's people. And within the story of Solomon's reign, you would see Israel's decline tracking with Solomon's decline. The future of the kingdom and the royal house are coupled by the king's faithfulness to God's covenant. Should the king become faithless to God, then all the consequences fall on the king and falls on the kingdom. The covenant with God has been an important theme throughout this sermon series. But as we approach our text today, the unnerving problem posed by Solomon's decline is, how can a man so wise, so mishandle God's law? How could a man who started out with so much end up with so little at the end? And how could a once faithful worshiper of God begin to behave like a pagan? Now, I'm not suggesting that Solomon was a pagan, but he was behaving like a pagan. But make no mistake, the Bible venerates Solomon. And in the early councils of the church, the ones that were responsible for formalizing and canonizing the Bible, they held that Solomon had been faithful right to the end. Solomon is, after all, responsible for up to 7%, one out of 14 words that we find in our Bibles. New Testament authors, they referenced him, and they honored him. And I wholeheartedly expect that Christians who will be fellowshipping heaven will find Solomon there. But what a shame and pity are these final years of Solomon's reign. Solomon is that prime example of that poor, poor soul that Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15, whose work is burned up, but he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Curious minds want to know why and how could Solomon's good start end with such disappointment? We may look, but we're not going to find a comprehensive answer. The narrative does not explain this spiritual tragedy. And what makes this important for us this morning is that we face that very same mystery of a spiritual life. Why does someone who begins so well stumble in the end? Or why does a Christian who once served so faithfully fade out in the end? Today, we will look at how Solomon's decline broke God's covenant and how it broke God's kingdom. Before we dive into the text, here are a few preliminary remarks. First, regarding David's legacy. You see, Solomon started with everything that a king could possibly want. David left the nation in great shape for his son. God favored him, appeared to him twice, promised to bless him, and made Solomon the wisest, the wealthiest, and the most powerful man of his time. And a remark about God's covenant. 
His father, David, taught and trained Solomon. He taught him everything he needed to know about God's covenant and the law, which is its foundation. The king pledged devotion to God and promised to obey those laws. He promised to obey on pain of punishment and discipline, not only for himself, but also for the citizens of his kingdom. He understood how God expected him to live and to rule. And we know that Solomon understood all of this. How do we know this? It's because in, the, in his prayer, in the dedication of the temple, he recounts all these terms. Now, when you get home and you're curious and you want to look this up, you can turn back to 1 Kings 8, verses 22 to 54, and you can read about his prayer of dedication. So from the very start, Solomon was set to succeed. So why his end was so disappointing is really a mystery. And just this week, I, I prayed with a young man who, whose faith is stumbling because he does not believe that God loves him, or at least he doesn't feel that God has treated him fairly. Now Solomon has no basis to make such a grievance. Solomon alone is responsible for the spiritual collapse that broke God's covenant and the kingdom. Now, if he could only own up to his sin, he could confess, repent, and be restored. That's what his father David did. Now, follow along as we see why Solomon failed to repent. Join me at the beginning of chapter 11. And, you know, if you have your Bibles open, your devices open, please keep them open, because uh, I'm not going to be having much of the text displayed behind me. See, first, a compromising heart led to Solomon's demise. First, we see Solomon's willingness to compromise with his culture. You see, Apostle John says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And that comes from 1 John 2, 15. So, was what Solomon did commonplace for kings of his time? While we find it incredibly distasteful, it was normal in the ancient Near East for kings to keep harems. Mighty kings kept mighty harems, num great numbers of wives and concubines, and for all their vain effort, Israel looked the part. What is more, such marriages were a standard way of ratifying treaties and maintaining foreign relations. You see, war and peace, literally life and death, sometimes depended on royal houses intermarrying. This was an accepted practice to mitigate the risk of war. Of course, I'm neither rationalizing nor justifying, but simply pointing out that Solomon had to walk this extremely thin line. But history showed that he failed. The first problem is that God's law did not permit him to marry Canaanite women. In other words, to be like the other nations, Solomon had to break God's commandments. You see, the second problem is that marrying was marrying these foreign women. 
it violated the very specific commandment that David had taught Solomon and that is found in Deuteronomy chapter 7. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve their gods. Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 to 4. Again, to do what he did required Solomon to break the law with respect to two obvious and specific requirements, one concerning his life as an Israelite and the other concerning his responsibility as Israel's king. And so there's also a third problem, and it's that God's commandment clearly states that such marriages defile a holy and obedient life. The law provided a rationale, but Solomon, despite his wisdom, he neglected that wisdom that was found in the law. He was more concerned about looking the role of king than guarding his heart against the pagan influence of his wives. His careless indifference compromised the integrity of his life, of his kingship, and the kingdom. Now, Crossbridge, who here among us can deny that we face similar problems as does Solomon? We live in an aggressively anti-Christian culture. Since we are a part of that culture, we are constantly under its influence. Consider the choices that shape our individual personalities and our group identity. Look at the clothes that we wear. Consider the foods that we eat, the cars that we drive the music that we listen to. We live as we do, shaped by the particular culture in which we've been raised. Now, there may be some among us who are of third culture, and they will understand what I'm about to say next. You see, our lives may feel very different and change in many interesting, but perhaps not so much in, in morally important ways if we were somehow picked up and moved and we were transposed into another culture. You see, that was, part, that was true for Solomon's time as well. You see, many aspects of local culture can be resisted. It could be embraced by Israelites with little or no harm done to their fidelity to God. But there is this inherent hostility in culture towards God and towards His law. Antagonism antagonism is ubiquitous because cultures are human expressions and by nature humans rebel against God. So in every culture you find some ideologies, institutions, and practices that cannot be safely harmonized with the life that is devoted to God and obedient to his law. Solomon played with fire and he was burned. In marrying many foreign wives and concubines, he became faithless to God and he became a lawbreaker. We can also see in Solomon's case, as in ours, another example of a culture's corrosive effect. You see, diversity is a fact of life. God looked upon his creation and the diversity within it and declared it good. 
But pluralism and diversity are not the same thing. And religious pluralism is a threat to the, to the worship of God in every era, in Solomon's time, today for us, and back in the time of the New Testament. You see, pluralism, of course, is not merely tolerating different religions of the world. Religious pluralism is a positivistic spin on diversity that asserts that every religion is equivalent and therefore valid. We know from scriptures that the worship of Yahweh and the worship of what others imagine to be gods are not the same. They're contrasted. The Bible teaches that such worship of gods is empty and vain because Yahweh is the only true and living God. Solomon's many wives may have been religious, but apparently they seemed unaware and uninformed. Because of their regular commitment to worshiping other gods, Solomon's heart turned, and he began to divide his heart among the foreign gods and to worship those idols. God's law categorically condemns such an infidelity and labels it as a chief offense against the one true and living God. Now, do you find it ironic that Solomon was corrupted by that very same environment that he created for himself? You see, once the foreign influence was tolerated and then accepted, it wasn't long before it perverted his faithfulness to God and obedience to his law. And such compromising influences are present in our Christian lives. What may have once felt like a foreign belief or an odd practice may at last be tolerated, accepted, and assimilated by followers of Christ. Pluralism threatens the orthodox practice of worship, and its corruption can lead to a syncretism of faith. Solomon's pluralistic view put the worship of idols on the same level as the worship of Yahweh. And the resulting syncretism of worship and of faith was the basis of Solomon's condemnation. But for most of his life, Solomon proved that he was wise and aware of his responsibilities to remain faithful to God and his law. He understood that his heart must remain purely devoted to Yahweh. But it was that dulling effect of that constant cultural pressure that weakened his resolve. Solomon could no longer resist his royal culture to remain loyal to God's covenant. A divided or syncretistic worship of idols in Yahweh is an abomination. Crossbridge, next week, you're going to begin to hear about who you are, your DNA. Do you know to whom you belong as followers of Christ? We may live in this world and we may be subject to its pressures and its culture, but if we follow Jesus Christ, we must worship him exclusively. Do you understand that implications? A faithless heart sealed Solomon's demise. Second, we see Solomon fail to guard his heart. Regardless of culture, believers, both men and women, face perils of sexual attraction. 
Solomon faced it. We saw it in verses 1 to 2 that describes Solomon as a man who loved women and he loved having women. Literally, as the Bible says, Solomon clung to these in love. The Hebrew verb that we find in these verses is dabak. And here it is the same that we find in Deuteronomy to describe that the ways the Israelites are commanded to cling to God. So what we see here is a contrast, a contest of devotion and love. We see that Solomon loved the Lord. The narrator told us just as much in, back in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 3. But he loved having women as well. And as the king, he was able to collect them. Eventually, he was no longer able to resist the influence of his many wives who turned his heart from God. Now, with his devotion to God compromised, we expected what would follow. Solomon went after the Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites, 1 Kings 11.5. He didn't intend for this outcome. He didn't wake up one day and said, hey, I'm going to give my heart to Ashtoreth. You see, the turning of his heart was a process. By all the wisdom that God provided him, Solomon must have realized that he was dividing his heart. Earlier, he could have been in denial, perhaps thinking, I just need one more wife. Later, he may have rationalized, saying to himself, hey, this makes good politics. I'm simply intermarrying to keep the peace with the nations. But at some point, he must have realized he was just deceiving himself. But how is it possible for him to love his harem, his 700 wives, his 300 concubines, to love their foreign gods, and to love the God of Israel? Of course, it's impossible. He never had a chance. And again, we find ourselves in the same predicament. We men are not kings. Yet, by our mobile devices and the internet, it allows us to experience that temptation of the harem. Christian men and women who succumb to this temptation don't realize that compulsions are the gateway to idolatry. Urges become habits that form addiction, which is difficult and costly to break. There's a betrayal of trust and a loss of family. There's an incapacitation and a loss of position, a job, even a career. And then there's that shame, a loss of integrity and self-esteem. King Solomon brought Israel into a covenant, a promise with God that they swore that they would keep. All of the covenant requirements were laid bare before all to know, along with its blessings and consequences. God is aware that disobedience is often enticing, it's attractive, it's charming, but it is also destructive. So God sent us his son, Jesus Christ. You see, in love, Jesus, by his spirit, shapes us into good and caring people by holding us accountable to these standards that we may not 
understand or perhaps understand and accept at that time. But God implores us to follow Jesus for our sake. So if you choose to go your own way, don't expect to escape the consequences. But if you do manage to escape them, don't expect your children to escape. Three, the consequences of Solomon's demise. Solomon broke God's covenant by failing to remain devoted to God. You see, consequences for Solomon manifested in two ways. First, divine anger towards the king, and second, division of the kingdom. The first set of consequences were directed at the king. Because Solomon tolerated foreign gods of his harem, and he built shrines, and then later on he worshipped those idols, the Lord became angry. God disciplined Solomon for his betrayal, and then made plans to remove his kingdom. Now, some of us may find it surprising that God would be angry, certainly angry at someone whom he called beloved of God. He was named Jedediah, after all. But now his name might as well be called scorned of God. Now, God's anger is unlike our anger. God's anger is always just, it's always right. And God's ang- God can be angry, yet remain loving and merciful. In contrast, when we're angry and that angry is turned inwards, it becomes bitterness. And when it's turned outward, it can become rage. There is hardly righteousness in much of our anger. Understandably, God is angry with Solomon. Twice he warned Solomon to remain devoted and follow his laws. You see, such holiness and obedience was meant to draw Solomon and to draw us within the will of God and enter into his blessings. And that promise applied to his sons too. Stay loyal, follow the commandments, and God will provide what? He'll provide a son to sit on the throne of Israel. And despite Solomon's sin, God kept that promise, but it would take years to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now, God would have been justified to have killed Solomon. Instead, God shows mercy and Solomon survives. And God explained that there in verse 12, saying, Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son. That's First Kings verses. 11 verses 12 to 13. And now the second set of consequences concerned the division of the kingdom at the hands of three adversaries. And you can read about that in the rest of chapter 11. See, God was raising up trouble for Solomon, who up until now was experiencing peace while he was devoted to the Lord. But as soon as his heart had turned, he began to serve God. And when his heart turned and he began to serve God, he immediately faced these adversaries. He was invincible when faithful, but when he became faithless, he became vulnerable. Invincible while faithful, defenseless while faithless. Hadad, the Edomite, was his first adversary. And you can read about it in verses 14 to 22. Rezan, 
Assyrian, the son of Eliada, was the second. And his account is in verses 23 to 25. But it's, I want to focus on his third adversary. His third adversary brought a particular misery to Solomon. We see that Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, was from the northern tribe of Ephraim. You see, he was very competent. He skillfully commanded the Jewish labor of the northern tribes of Joseph. And for his outstanding work, he, he even got the attention of Solomon who had promoted him. And to Jeroboam, God had sent his prophet Ahijah and to prepare him to rule the northern tribes of Israel. Of course, such a plan required some convincing. So God prepared Ahijah to pro provide a prophetic sign. So the prophet Ahijah grabs a hold of Jeroboam's cloak and he tears it into pieces. And he hands to Jeroboam ten pieces meant to signify that he would be given ten tribes to rule over. This sign was absolutely necessary because Jeroboam would be required to muster that courage to face Solomon later. And finally, when Solomon heard what Ahijah had prophesied, he tried to put Jeroboam to death. Rather than plotting to... What was Solomon thinking? Rather than plotting, he should have been repenting. His father David humbled himself, repented, and was forgiven and restored. Do you ever wonder whether Solomon repented? The Bible doesn't say. But we do know that ultimately Solomon survived and he died of old age. But he left a legacy in Israel and through his descendants. Israel would continue to stumble for years to come because of the high places that he constructed. Even four centuries later, as you can read in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, the sinful legacy that Solomon left the nation continued to trouble the nation. And his son Rehoboam in chapter 12 fulfilled the prophecy of Ahijah when the ten northern tribes came under Jeroboam's reign. See, Solomon started well, but he finished poorly. What an incredibly bold contrast that is with the life of Apostle Paul, who testified saying, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. That comes from 2 Timothy verses four and chapter 4, verse 7. Now, while Solomon walked in the way of the Lord, God blessed both king and kingdom. Solomon re received the wisdom that he prayed for. And his kingdom experienced remarkable peace and prosperity. But when Solomon's heart turned from the Lord, God withdrew that favor. And he disciplined Solomon with those adversaries. So Crossbridge, let us commit our hearts to God by trusting him and by obeying him. May we remember what Jesus said to us. He called us to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and mind. Crossbridge, will you put Jesus Christ first? Join me in prayer. Our Father, 
help us apply the lesson of Solomon, whose words of remorse read from Proverbs 4.23 is a lesson and help for us. He warns us that out of the heart flows the springs of life, and we guard the treasure room of our souls. May we discern what we want most of all in life. Lord, whom have we in heaven besides you? And who on earth do we desire more than you? May we ponder that with humility, honesty, and integrity of heart. In Christ's name, amen.